Stephen. Good morning. Good morning. You sound a little different. <laughs> Somehow my voice seems deeper, richer, smoother. <laughs> Thanks for saying. Uh, maybe it's the water or maybe it's this uh, new Yeti mic. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the mic and they are great. Uh, I have one too, as you can see. And a huge thank you to Mark and Mara for, for the recommendation. Wouldn't sound like this without you. That's right. So I think this is our sixth week now discussing Trinity Heights as a community of Christians and skeptics. Over those past weeks, we've talked a lot about bridge building uh, between the church and culture, which uh, we spoke about involves a lot of language learning and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've looked at the Bible then as a book of full of stories, just chock full, and then the power of, of story, and, and then the questions at the heart of the biblical narrative. Mm. Uh, specifically, the question, what does it mean to be human? Which seems to be the motor uh, that, that drives the whole Christian plot line. And then lastly, tied to all of that, we spoke more in depth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. We, we discussed how the resurrection is not just a, a vindication of Jesus, but it is the vindication of a humanity shaped like Jesus or shaped yeah. around Jesus. So we, we look at the resurrected Jesus and God says, this is what the future of humanity is going to look like. In other words, God's, God's not giving up on creation. He's, he's not mm -hmm. giving up on us. Right. And I think it's easy to take that for granted. Uh, but then I think back to parts of the Bible where entire generations uh, felt like they had no future or had been completely abandoned by mm -hmm. God. And I think that really does put things in perspective. The, the coming of Christ and his resurrection shows us that things are, in fact, moving forward. Humanity hasn't gotten stuck and, and the story of humanity continues. That's right. It's, it's the reopening, if you like, of our, of our story, mm -hmm. which, is, which is something I think most of us, especially in New York right now, might be able to relate to in a new way. Uh, it, it feels like we're stuck, right? And not just because of COVID, sure. but it feels like relationships have got stuck, that they're trapped in, in this very unhealthy cycle. So we're waiting and we're anticipating the, the reopening of our stories, of, of our lives together, in a sense. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. I know these conversations have been incredibly encouraging to me because they've allowed me to pause and imagine more deeply what true community means. Uh, I guess, I mean, community in the broader sense, how we as humans are potentially involved in a larger project. The way that we relate to each other and view our place in the world is all a part of, of that big humanity shaping project. Hmm. And also more specifically, I think about our own community of Christians and skeptics at Trinity Heights and what the future looks like for us. And uh, with that, the potential hurdles and pitfalls we might encounter as we continue to grow together. It just seems to me that the more the church can accurately reflect what it means to be in community with the rest of humanity and the broader culture, uh, the more chance there is for for honest interactions. But of course, uh, whatever you do, there, there's always going to be issues. People uh, disagree. We don't always believe the mm -hmm. same things. Uh, but this is, this is reality. This is the church. Um, the, the church has always had to sort of engage with, with issues like this. And I think the church has all, or it does need to, in, in a certain sense, find a way to live uh, with the tension of difference. Uh, and it's, it seems to me that this is just par for the course. Yeah, no, it, it is, absolutely. And, and I think 
uh, one of the biggest challenges when when you try to bring two groups of people together with divergent views and experiences is that they can be very suspicious of each other for different reasons. And of course, the longer the history, uh, the harder it is. Doesn't doesn't matter if it's black and white people or Sunni and Shia Muslims or Hutus and Tutsis. Uh, and I think there will be suspicion of the people who are attempting to bring these groups together in the first place. Uh, I always remember our dear friend Celestin talking about his work starting in the, in the refugee camps in Rwanda. He was beaten up and left for dead for trying to bring people together. So there's, you know, suspicion all, all around. Right. Uh, but obviously in the context of this discussion, we're focusing on the fact that we're a community of, of Christians and, and skeptics. Yeah, we are. We're a community of, of Christians and skeptics. So just naturally, we aren't going to agree on everything all the time. So I guess it's important that we talk a bit about what particular questions or suspicions uh, these two groups, Christians and skeptics, might might have. Sure. Um, so so I think from, from the skeptic side, there's often a question lurking in the back of the mind. Is, is this going to be a real conversation where I can ask anything? I mean, the church might say this is the case, but when it comes down to it, am I going to discover that this is more of a marketing ploy? And actually, there are really all these different places we can't go because people feel too threatened, right? Right. Uh, I, I always remember my friend Jack, who was really more agnostic, but leaning toward atheism at, at one point. Well, he, he'd been, he and I had been talking for a couple of years, right? A couple of years. And then one day he fessed up and said, you know, in the back of my mind, I've always been waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, like there was going to be this place where the conversation couldn't go. Questions we couldn't ask because, you know, the church was going to be too, too scandalized or, or, or something like that. <laughs> right. And I, I know uh, with, with my past, having grown up in more conservative uh, evangelical circles, um, you and, and anyone, I guess, who might have had uh, interactions similar to mine, uh, you do have this idea that... Um, that, oh, well, if you have been surrounded by scandalized Christians, it really is difficult to imagine that uh, any other Christian might act differently. Yeah, no, there's definitely a phenomenon of that in, in certain parts of the church. But, you know, I, I think when, whenever people's deepest values, doesn't matter who you are, whenever your deepest values are called into question or attacked, uh, people tend to feel a little shocked and, and, and offended by that. So, uh, you know, it can happen the other way around just as easily. Uh, to, to bring up my good friend Nietzsche, uh, you know, once you read him, you're going to have a hard time being scandalized by people's questions or people attacking your cherished values because they're all going to be so tame by comparison. But, but uh, strangely enough, what I often find is that you know, friends who are atheists are often scandalized by Nietzsche. And I've seen this happen a number of occasions. So you start explaining what Nietzsche meant and they're horrified. So, so this this works both ways. It, it's just it's just what happens when you call into question people's sort of cherished beliefs and and, and values. But but going back to my friend Jack, he he said that after a couple of years of, of thinking that you know any moment now the conversation is going to get shut down, he finally realised this was never going to happen. And I think that's really great when people know that because it means you know we can just relax around each other and and, and have real conversations. Yeah, and I think in our culture today, especially in New York, but across the board, it seems that we're all on high alert for deal breakers in our relationships with people. It's almost as if any slight deviation someone might take from our long list of criteria uh, causes so much strain uh, on our hair trigger hearts uh, that we immediately jump to thinking that, well, maybe uh, the relationship might not work out. And I guess I, I wonder sometimes whatever happened to robustness and resilience inside relationships mm. 
all relationships, no matter how big or small. Yeah, uh, and, and I think you're right in pointing out that there is this sort of heightened sensitivity to all this when it comes to, to exploring questions of, of, of faith as, uh, as yeah, well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, on, on, the, on the other hand, you know, when, when you do sort of open up the door for genuine conversation where, where everything's fair game and anything and everything can be called into question, then you get suspicion from some Christians who think, well, this, this obviously means you, you've just abandoned the faith and everything's loosey-goosey and we, we, we don't have any real convictions about anything. So, so I think that that's the, that's the sort of the, the tension, if, if you will. You, you, you want to bring people together to engage in meaningful conversations about the big questions, but these are the, the different concerns people bring into the room. You know, one person thinks the conversation is going to be shut down. The other person's thinking, well, we've abandoned the ancient doctrines of, of Orthodox Christianity. It's, it's a really interesting tension. You know, we've been talking a lot about story and the vastness of it. The fact that story by nature is difficult to pin down and it's more open-ended. Uh, but let's just acknowledge that, that someone who deeply values doctrine and then hears something like we've just said might immediately think, well, these guys have gone off the map. They're completely against doctrine and looking for any chances to pull up anchor and, and venture off into the unknown. You know, you, you said loosey-goosey, uh, but before we go any further, I think it would be important that we can, we just clarify exactly what we mean by doctrine. Yeah, that, that, could, be, that could be helpful. So in, in, in terms of a quick definition, I, th I, th I think of doctrine as a formalized statement of Christian belief. Okay, so that's good. A formalized statement of, of Christian belief. Uh, so people value, or, or we could say the church has valued uh, these formalized statements um, or these doctrines. And you're saying that, that if people make space for people to question anything and everything, uh, Christians become concerned that, that you've abandoned these, these ancient doctrines. Right, and and the the moment the moment I try to reassure them, no, 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 it's it's okay. We 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 hold to these great doctrines of the faith, mm -hmm. and then the skeptic over here, uh, they overhear me, and they they say, oh boy, doctrines, th <laughs> there it is, the unquestionable magisterium, religion telling us what to think. Idea again, you know, these ideas being sort of being imposed from from on high. Uh, I guess I'm out. So so you can yeah. you can see the, the the sort of bind we're, we're in. This is stuck between a rock and a hard place in some sense. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a catch-22 isn't it? it it really is um but but i think i think it has a lot to do with how christians have often used doctrinal statements to measure people up to decide who they mm. let into the club as it were uh but but i think so much of this tension could be resolved if christians and skeptics um both had a better understanding of the original function of doctrine in the life of the church and i, and I think if we understood the historical setting that gave rise to these doctrines in the first place then, then we again like i said earlier we could just relax around each other a little bit more and actually it all ties back to the conversation which uh, we've been having um which you just referenced about about story and and, and narrative uh, you know a few weeks ago we said that the bible is not a, a book full of doctrines but we have a book full of stories from which the doctrines have, have been extracted now now the key point for us this morning is that that doctrine uh was there to safeguard the integrity of the story by reinforcing certain key moments in in, in the plot line uh, and thereby preventing the story sort of just going astray and, and losing its way. Uh, do doctrine was meant to play that kind of supporting role for the story. It, it was never meant to supplant the story. The, 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 the story isn't a proof text for our do doctrines. It, it's, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. but, but there has been this sort of role reversal. Now, now this may seem like a very subtle difference, but it's, it's I think, a very important one.
Yeah, I, I really like what you just said there uh, about story not being the proof text for our doctrines. Um, <laughs> right. In, in, in art, uh, and specifically in visual art and, and painting, we talk a lot about uh, color theory and composition. Uh, essentially, color theory is the science of the way colors work together to create harmonies. And, and of course, uh, composition is the way that shapes and the visual structure of, of the entire painting works. Uh, both color theory and composition are essentially uh, rigid systems. Uh, all of the best paintings answer to them and deal with them in ways that might uh, push the boundaries of these structures, uh, but never step outside of them completely. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so, so, you know, it is. And it's, 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 it, I find it really interesting because no matter how classical or contemporary a painting might be, uh, and or no matter how quintessentially beautiful or aesthetically challenging a work of art might be, um, all of these works of art have to engage and tap into the rules of color theory and composition. Right. So I guess uh, we could, from that, sort of say that color theory and composition function as, as doctrine for paintings. And, and, and in that case, it would be absurd to make the claim that the only reason that great works of art like the Mona Lisa or the Last Supper, that, that these things actually exist just to prove and bolster up color theory and composition, um, paintings don't exist for color theory and composition. Um, you know, it's, it's the other way around. Right, they, they exist for, for painting. That, that, exactly. that's, a, that's a beautiful example. It's, it's, it's the right analogy to make, really helpful. Um, look, this, this is, I think, so important, and, and I, I really want people to get this. So, so let me give a couple more, more examples. Um, to, to bring up a couple of stories that we've already referenced in the, in the, in the previous weeks, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, we, we mentioned that, and, uh, and Star Wars. So <laughs> if, if I tell you, for example, the, the story of uh, Little Red Riding Hood, and, and I say that, that despite the, the, the sharp teeth and the snout and the pointy ears, it really was Riding Hood's grandmother, and that the grandmother had actually eaten the wolf and that Red was very upset by this because she had been very good friends with the wolf after all. Well, well any four-year-old, right, who knows this story will immediately know, well, wait, that's not how that goes. Of course, they may take some uh, perverse pleasure in having the story sort of twisted in this way, but the point is they know you're messing with the characters of the story. You're yeah. breaking with the, the, the narrative convention and you're, and you're taking the story off in some, some other direction that it's, it's not supposed to go. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think if you think of any well-known story that that is that is tampered with this in, in, in tampered with in, in this similar way sure. the, the the initiates of that story immediately know when, when the basic integrity of the story is, is sort of coming undone so mm -hmm. so you know I'm a I'm a Star Wars fanboy. A surprise! I do know uh, that. I, I, can, I can hear the groans already right, <laughs> with what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, so, in in the Please original. In, in the original uh, trilogy of movies, the protagonist, who everyone knows, Luke Skywalker, he's this person who is willing to lay down his life in self-sacrifice in order to redeem mm -hmm. his father. And so he refuses to give in to his hatred and fear, and he refuses to strike down the evil emperor. Mm -hmm. Then you fast forward to the movie The Last Jedi, and Luke is now this giant man-baby who apparently felt threatened by his young nephew and decides to try to kill him in his sleep. 
<laughs> and the reason why these, these new movies, by comparison, didn't make half the money they should have done at the box office is partly because everyone really invested in these stories knows, wait, wait, that, that's not how that story goes. Mm -hmm. the, the character has been gutted, the plot's taken a wrong turn, the story's been hijacked and taken off just somewhere else entirely. Right. So, so to, to, to bring it back to the church, the doctrines came about in order to prevent that sort of twisting of the story. Right. So people love uh, specific stories, obviously, you know, the way that you love Star Wars. Uh, people intimately um, are in tune with, with the, the, these stories. And if you are intimately in tune with the story, then I guess you would have a heightened uh, awareness that whenever the character or, or plot lines have been right. distorted or, or, or tampered with, right? So, so you're saying that, that in the course of the church's history, um, that the Christian story has at different points and in different ways uh, been tampered with or has, has been a victim to that kind of, of tampering. Absolutely. So, so one um, classic example, the story of the incarnation and resurrection, like, like we were saying last week, it, it, it essentially mm -hmm. redefines humanity. And, uh, and in, in doing so, th this story set the early Christian community in opposition to, to, to the, the dehumanizing brutality and, and the coercive power of the Roman state. So Jesus will shape your humanity one way, Caesar another, right? So along comes a guy called Marcion, who, who was a very wealthy shipping magnet, who, whose uh, arrival in, in Rome had, had apparently generated something of a stir, something of a, a sensation. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't take much historical imagination to think that someone like him, with so much to lose, might not like a story which sets you in opposition to the state. And, mm -hmm. and that someone in his position might want to tamper with the story a little bit here and a little bit there, precisely at those moments where these, these dangerous antagonisms are created. And, and so it's quite possible that it, it was sort of out of political expedience that Marcion changes the story to say, well, God didn't really take on human flesh. And this material world was created by an evil lesser God. So we should just withdraw into a personal and private spirituality that doesn't, doesn't have to deal with the dehumanizing cult of empire and emperor. Doesn't have to confront that. So, so this, is a, this is a smart thing to do if you, if you want to remain alive or even better rich, right? Follow the money, as, as they say. <laughs> right. I, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, don't hold it against me, Stephen, but... Um... But I've actually never heard of, of Marcion or anything along the lines of, of some ancient a business person actively working to distort the Christian story for his own convenience. Yeah. So, so he, he was, Marcion was essentially, he was really offended that the Christian community in Rome didn't accept his teachings. So, so he turned his back on them and uh, he was turning Christianity into a sort of more private politically neutral spirituality and essentially steps back from the humanity shaping project. Okay, got it. So he's a rich guy. He likes the idea of being a Christian, but doesn't like the idea of rocking the boat uh, or being persecuted or losing his successful shipping business, all things that might happen should things get uh, too radical. Uh, so he, he actually changes the story. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, but then on, on the other hand, you, you have the church father, Ir Irenaeus, who as a young man 
had sat at the feet of a local bishop by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp had known the apostle John. So Irenaeus knew Polycarp, Polycarp knew John, and Irenaeus would have heard Polycarp recounting what he had heard from John's own reminiscence. So John mm -hmm. as in the apostle John who, who wrote the gospel of John. So, so the moment someone like Marcion and other people started saying, this material world is evil and God never came in human form, well, then he would have immediately said, well, wait, wait a moment, that, that's not how the story goes. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, that's that's amazing. I, I, I'm imagining Marcion as this kind of seductive, uh, super charming, laid-back guy going around twisting the story, and every once in a while saying to I Irenaeus, uh, you, you know, like, yo, just like chill out, bro. Like, take it easy, man. You know, let's not let's not get all worked up about the details. <laughs> and Irenaeus is looking right back at him, thinking. Uh, how how superficial can you get? You could you couldn't get more out of touch and checked out if you if you tried, and I, I think we ha we have to understand again, you know, what why these stories mattered to this community of early Christians. These stories not only brought them in, into into confrontation with the state, as we've already said, but but were the stories which actually sustained them through that confrontation, that they sustained them through horrendous persecution as they were being put to the sword, torn by wild animals, burned alive and melted on iron chairs, that they were, they were taking comfort in the God who had identified with their humanity. They were, they were following a God who had come and suffered with them in the flesh. And, and, and of course, um, Incarnation is, is very close to, to, to resurrection, right? Those, those two things are very close. And so the, the God who had identified yes. with them in, in their bodily suffering also promised to vindicate their humanity through bodily resurrection, essentially disarming the tyrant by taking away the tyrant's last weapon, which is death. Now, now whether you believe those things or not, that, that's a, a very different question. But th this, this was the story that created the confrontation and sustained them through that. Uh, so, so the doctrine of the incarnation was formulated to, to shore up that aspect of the story. So, so this wasn't this wasn't about drawing up the rules of club membership and, and using them to decide who was in and, and who was out of the club. And then the head of the club, chairman of the club that year, nasty old Irenaeus, was, was going around getting those people who didn't believe the right things. This was a community in confrontation with coercive and brutal state, the brutal state machinery of Rome, facing torture, facing death, and they were not going to be sustained by the anemic, politically safe, creation-hating, escapist story, which is essentially the story that, that Marcin and, and friends were telling. Yeah, when you put it that way, uh, the idea of doctrine uh, actually becomes quite moving, uh, but then you, you know yeah, you have this 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 thing on, on the flip side where you know you you hear people um, talk about doctrine or when they hear the word doctrine they immediately uh, conjure up images of, of of nasty powerful bishops coming in and getting people for not believing the right things or essentially punishing and, and torturing people. Um, for not aligning themselves with the correct doctrine. Right, and that, that is a perversion of all of this uh, that, and, and happened later, but that, that's not how these doctrines emerge in the first place, and that is not what they were for. And, and, I, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a, I'm a Christian. It's, it's essentially the, the understanding you come to if, if you read something like Tom Holland's brilliant book, Dominion, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago. He, he's an agnostic historian, uh, won awards for his, his work, and, and and unlike some of the hacks who, who sort of make stuff up as they go along, he refuses to perpetuate this, this weird fiction that pretends that this, this wealthy shipping magnate Marcion and, and politically tame don't rock the boat storytelling was, was really what Christianity was about. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Well, if the story was as tame as Marcion claimed, then, then you know, why did they have to crucify Jesus? I think that's yeah. a question we, need, we have to ask. Oh, absolutely. Uh, essentially, had, had Christ's teachings fallen in line with, with Marcion's story, uh, there would have been no reason to crucify him because his message and everything he stood for would have been mostly palatable to, to the Roman Empire, basically uh, a non-threat. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but you have one group of people announcing Jesus is Lord. Uh, but mm -hmm. wait, we thought Caesar was Lord. You, you can't have <laughs> two lords and kings and emperors, right? Uh, and uh, you, you, can, you can find plenty of other examples. The, the, the early church, Father Origen, who, who came up with the, the doctrine of the Trinity, as a young boy, he saw his father refuse to let the state force him to worship Caesar. And, and so as a young, young boy, Origen saw his own father beheaded. And Origen himself was eventually tortured for refusing to, to worship Caesar. So, so the people who sentenced him to this were actually very reluctant to do that because they'd come to respect him for his, his brilliant intellect and just the very impressive human that he was. But by law, they had no choice. And so, so he was tortured. Uh, he never relented, but he also he never recovered, and, and he died a year or so uh, after his ordeal. So, so mm -hmm. look, the, the point is the context in which these doctrines emerged uh, and the reason for their, their emergence makes, makes all the difference. Yeah, this reminds me of something you mentioned a while back, uh, Stephen, about how we're all too comfortable. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how in a more decadent culture, uh, when harsh persecution and, and hardship is... is completely removed or mostly removed from the equation, uh, doctrine almost becomes reduced down to a kind of hobby. <laughs> <laughs> right. But for the early church, this wasn't anything like a hobby, right? So look, right. Over, over here, you've got option one. Doctrine is an indoor activity. Uh, I, I like what you said. It's a sort of a hobby or, or perhaps we could say a math problem, something to be you know, worked out on a calculator and eventually systematized and, and, then, and then used to keep people out of some exclusive mm. club, or perhaps you use it to tell people uh, who were never really interested in the first place exactly what to think. Okay, so, so that, that's, that's option one. Mm -hmm. Or option two, this was about reinforcing key moments in a vast and wild story which was sustaining people in the midst of, of vast and, and terrible persecution. I mean, these are two very, two very different things, right? Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, two polar opposites even. Mm. And I, I think uh, putting doctrine before the story or, or valuing doctrine instead of the story would be like someone saying that, you know, it's not the actual contents of, 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 of a book or, uh, you know, a, a, of a story that really matter, but it's actually, um, you know, it's actually the table of, of contents and, and, and the index. So we actually need to spend more time reading the table of contents. Okay, let's <laughs> skip the middle, let's skip the actual story, and let's fast forward to the index and let's spend a lot of time just kind of perusing that's, both of these things. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's exactly what it's like um, when, when we prioritize doctrine over story. Uh, and, and look, there's, there's actually a really terrible irony in all this uh, because it, it's quite possible to check all, all the correct doctrinal boxes but to put those doctrines all within the wrong controlling narrative. Um, it, it's possible, in other words, to affirm the Trinity, check, the Incarnation, mm -hmm. check, the Atonement, check, the Resurrection, check, the Call to Holiness, check, and, and still work within the narrative, which actually colludes with the politically safe, don't rock the boat, private spirituality of someone like Marcion. Mm 
Sure. Um, N.T. Wright uh, points out that this is exactly what happens when Orthodox Christians think and speak and pray and live as though the, the, the main aim of the game was to go to heaven when you die and embrace what is really a very detached private spirituality and a world-denying escapist vision for, for the future. Now, it's, it's true that Marcion and the Gnostics who came after him, you know, redefined the resurrection so as to mean a, a spiritual new life in the present continuing into the hereafter. Mm. But what's the difference between that and, and sort of our post-enlightenment pietists and evangelicals who use the word resurrection as a, as a sort of metaphor for going to heaven as, as the Christian's true home. In, in other words, it's, it's actually possible to hold the, the essentially sort of Gnostic narrative or the Marcion narrative while simultaneously affirming the great doctrines without ever realizing that, that these things sort of militate against each other, mm. especially things like the incarnation and the resurrection tilts very heavily against that, that narrative. Uh, and, and it's possible to do this without noticing how, how this would deconstruct Jesus' prayer that neither Marcion or, or any Gnostic would ever dream of praying, which is this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I do agree w with you here, Stephen. But like I said before, you know, I, I grew up um, in, in in a Christian evangelical background uh, with all the right doctrines, but uh, essentially uh, mostly in the wrong controlling story. Uh, and that um, left me with a lot of, of unpacking to do over the course of most of my 20s and, and early 30s, in fact. It, it took a long time for me to realize that I had grown up inside a, a more Gnostic narrative, like, like you say, and, and that, and it was specifically uh, this idea that, that we, we would place a huge premium on, on personal salvation and going to heaven when you die. So in light of, of how ingrained, I guess, the idea of, of personal salvation and going to heaven when you die is in uh, the church, I, I think that most people uh, who have grown up with backgrounds similar to mine, uh, might hear you say what you just said and 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 echo and, and just echo Jesus's disciples outright uh, when they said you know Jesus this is a, a hard teaching yeah uh, like, like we I think you know to circle back around to the beginning of our conversation today it's like we were saying there it, it's always scandalizing to have things sort of shaken up in this way to have your your, your cherished beliefs and values sort of called into question or rearranged mm -hmm. or, or in, in some way shape or form mm -hmm. but but that's what happens I think when we we go back to the roots of this story that defines resurrection in, in a very particular way uh, look when I heard all of this for the first time I, I thought perhaps this was some sort of crazy new idea but actually there's, there's nothing new about it this is just a rediscovery of an ancient story, the, the story that the Jesus disciples set out to tell. And, and I think with a faithful reading of that story, then, then all of a sudden the doctrines that seemed detached and, and the doctrines that seemed rigid and dry take on a whole new life. They, they become deeply significant to our lives. They're, they're windows, if you like, on, onto the wider story which we are invited to inhabit. Well, thanks so much, Stephen. It's been great chatting today. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, you know, this conversation. Same, same. Yeah. And uh, thanks uh, to all of you uh, listening in. Uh, we want you to know that conversations like this um, aren't meant to just stop here. Uh, this isn't just between Stephen and I. Uh, we don't meet uh, uh, once a week on Zoom to, to you know, just, just kind of throw things back and forth. We want the, these conversations to, to echo out in, into the Trinity Heights community. So we really do mean it um, 
when we say that we hope we can talk soon, uh, please reach out and um, let us know what you think. Take care. Absolutely. Talk soon. Thank you.